Some restaurants. Yeah. I'm behind you 100%. This is the first I'm hearing of this. But So I want to open a series of restaurants. I've been thinking about this for at least three hours. Okay. <laughs> and um, uh, the first restaurant is called Unbuttoned. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and you can only wear moo's, jeggings, <laughs> and uh, palazzo pants. Um, oh. And if you choose to wear pants, you have to non-sexually unbutton them. Uh, how do you um, non like n- like a not? Like, it's not sexual. You not just, a strip tease. No, you just unbutton them so you have more room. What if you uh, pop them off organically? That's you get of your free. Your meal is free. <laughs> it is comfort food. We just don't want any restriction. Sure. No, no physical restriction against eating the food. But probably nothing pompous, right? Like you're not going to serve caviar until you come unbuttoned. Yeah, exactly. Okay, no, this perfect. is this is meatloaf. Chicken oh, fried steak, God. all the good stuff. I'm behind unbutton. Right? Does that sound fun? Okay, yeah. second mm-hmm. place you might like. It's called Hallelujah Pasta. <laughs> okay, I'm in already. And the servers are called Pasta Angels. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the third Where do I one. Sign up. The third one is called Queen Meat. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And um, it's actually a restaurant where people come to feed me meat. <laughs> Um, while I'm on a throne, and I, as a generous queen, offer them my chicken detritus. Oh, my God. Skin, so there's actually no food served here to the public. This is no, just it's just for me. <laughs> it's just for me. This but they a, get my scraps. It's just a, <laughs> the peons. A meat delivery service for, for Mary Lambert. Okay. <laughs> queen meat. I'm down. Okay, those are my restaurant are ideas. You, are you, like, seeking investments for this? Yes. These? Yeah, I was thinking about uh, soliciting Shark Tank. Great. Well, speaking of soliciting. Yes. This is <laughs> This is unscripted, by the way. Yeah. That that was a natural transition. Where else can you get that in media? Nowhere. Nowhere else. So if you would like to show your appreciation and support the pod, we're going to give you a way to do that in just a moment. And we want to start this episode by recognizing our Patreon supporters. That's right. We have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Manic Episodes. We will talk about that in just a bit. But first of all, We have some fabulous lies to tell y'all about our patrons, Patreonites, Um, about about our Patreons, 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 Patreon supporters. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Why don't you, uh, why don't you start us off, Mary? Okay. uh, I want to say a big thank you to Vanessa for letting me borrow her cardigan. (laughs) I was really cold and she'll be borrow it. That was really thoughtful of her. Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you, Vanessa. Um, I want to shout out Hope, uh, who helped me move my waterbed last weekend. Oh. And it was so funny. It popped while we were moving it up the driveway. Oh, no. Which wasn't Hope's fault. But we made the best of it by creating a crude slip and slide, and we played on it all day long. That's wonderful. Thank you, Hope. <laughs> um, I want to say congratulations to Sarah, who just discovered a new species of duck. <laughs> quack, quack, Sarah. <laughs> I'm going to poop. Okay. um, And I would like to mention Siri. Um, Siri, who I ran into the other day at the grocery store, buying four carts full of just mangoes. Wow. And I was like, Siri, what in the world? What's the plan with the mangoes? And she said she was going to make the world's biggest smoothie in her swimming pool. 
just unreal. The, the, the kind of people that support we us. Know. Um, I want to say a warm thank you to Charity, who just won World's Nicest Smile. <laughs> Charity, congratulations. <laughs> I didn't even know the finals were happening. They happened. I got eliminated in the preliminary. No, no, you were the one winner. Of, one of the first the rounds. Secret winner. Honey, no, Charity's the winner. You can't insult our pa- pa- Patreon, Patreons, our Patrites. Are parasites. Uh-oh. No, not that. <laughs> um, and I would like to recognize Sam and Mac, who actually just beat Venus and Serena Williams in a new sport <laughs> that combines doubles tennis and a potato sack race. And I was just really impressed by that. So congratulations, Sam Congratulations, and Mac. you guys. Big deal. Um, I want to say a blessing to Madeline, who built a spaceship spot just for dogs. Do you hear about this? <laughs> hey, folks, do you hear about this? Do you read about, you about this? this? <laughs> I would like to recognize Bobby, um, who was just nominated for a MacArthur Genius Grant for teaching squirrels how to hitchhike. Oh, wow. Well. He's doing really important work. Um, it should make traveling much safer for our furry friends. So <laughs> That's incredible. Thanks um, for that. I think the biggest thank you of all yeah. to Mo. Mo. Oh, my God. Yes. Mo cooked the best eggplant parmesan last night and... Taught me how to cartwheel. No. Is yeah. that what y'all were doing in the yeah, front yeah, yard yeah, yeah, for so yeah, long? Yeah, 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 You know what she said? Do you know what she said to me? What? What Mo said to me? Um, it was after dinner and after y'all done the cartwheel stuff in the front yard. She came up to me and she said, Wyatt, I don't want to embarrass you guys, but I just wanted to tell you privately you're almost out of toilet paper in the guest bathroom. <sighs> gem. You can't. Absolute gem. You can't buy that level of friendship. You can, however, buy your way into us making an extra special lie just about you. So if you'd like for us to make up lies about you, I don't know if we're going to keep doing this, but um, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash manic episodes. We have six tiers for y'all to choose from if you want to support the podcast. Um, You can start at the Golden Hearts Club. For just a dollar, you get our unending love and respect. For a dollar a month. Just a dollar. Honestly, you have that anyway, but it'll, you know, I don't know, maybe it's, is it tax deductible? Probably not. Um... (laughs) For five bucks, you can join the Homeostasis Club. For five bucks a month, you get our unending love and respect and access to an exclusive monthly listener Q&A episode that will be released via our Patreon yes, feed. Yes, generated from questions by questions from you. Um, at the Elevated Mood Club, you're starting to feel good. Maybe you just, maybe you open another credit card, but you haven't done anything with it yet. Yeah, you know? and that means your credit score goes up. Yeah, right. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Elevated Mood, just feeling good. Yep. For $15, you get all of those benefits before, and you get a shout-out on the pod. Which, so, as you've experienced, we don't go half-ass. We don't, we don't fuck around here. No half-measures. You are Shout-out Breaking honored. Bad. That's right. <laughs> you are honored. Manic Club. This is the Manic Club tier. Yeah. I mean, this is like... This is what you hope for, yeah. right? Yeah. Everybody's in the Manic fam, but a select few are in the Manic Club. Manic Club. Right. Um, you get all those benefits from before and a custom reading list from uh, Wyatt and a custom playlist from me and 10% off merchandise on my website. And and you've got some really cute shit on your website. I do crop tops. Tote bags. CDs. Records. Everything you could want. Um, okay, so two more tiers. We make this worth your while. For 30 bucks a month, you get all that stuff and access to a weekly unfiltered, unedited video of us recording the podcast. This video is full of laughs. It's full of farts. It's full of burps. It's full of dogs. Um, We 
edit the shit out of these podcasts. We have hours of this footage that no one will hear. I mean, you'll get to see what Mary's wearing right now. You'll get to see what I'm wearing right now. You'll get to see when Turnip emerges from the blanket and yawns. And you'll get access to past videos of us recording the podcast as well. It's really good, if I do say so myself. Um, and we have weird shit in the background. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You something, have to, something secret. You have to support us. Also, if you're in the Hypermanic Club, um, I will professionally edit your resume, CV, or cover letter. That's incredible. Like I don't think we've talked about how what an incredible resource that is. I'm really good at it. Why it has a PhD in English and writing studies. Thank you, honey. I was also the assistant director of a business writing center for years and um, worked with like Fortune 500 companies on job application stuff. So please take take advantage of that. I bet you there's some jerk out there who would charge you a lot of money for that. Not me. Not the manic episodes. Mm-hmm. Couldn't be me. All right. And finally. Wait, so, we have to say this is this is at $50. It's the Euphoria Club. Oh. You've reached absolute nirvana. You can't go any higher than this. Nothing could get you higher than this. No cocktail of antidepressant, of no, of, of antipsychotic. Yes. Lithium can't get you yes. there. Only this can get you there. Um, we are not licensed psychiatrists, by the way. But for 50 bucks, you can ask us a question a month and we'll answer in a short private video to you. This is like having two bipolar therapists on call at your beck and call. One of them is a Grammy nominated singer songwriter. Uh, the other one um, wears hats. So uh, yeah, I also I think it's important that like that's just a video. If you want us, if you want us to sing you a song, if yeah. you want us, to, if you want to see a video of us cor- like learning choreography. Oh my god! We'll do and <clears throat> we'll do anything for fifty dollars. Give us a recipe. We'll make a video of us trying to make it. That's oh for sure. Give us a song you want us to cover. Tell me what instrument to play. I'll figure out how yeah. to play it. Yeah. Um. I there are there are. A few things I wouldn't do. We are talking today about work. I don't like. I don't like that. <laughs> work. Cover girl. Put the base in your walk. Work. Um. We are talking work, academia, and balance today. Yes. Mary, you were worried that this was going to be sort of an unsexy episode. Yeah, I just didn't know because you know I love to go deep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what she said. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. I read. I saw it in your yeah. eyes. Uh-huh. I wanted to say it. Did you, you feel great it. about it? I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like. I spend so much of my life on the extreme where I'm just like so in depth with stuff and I'm talking about really heavy shit all the time Yeah, that I'm like, nobody, nobody wants to talk about the boring stuff. Like the, the, I guess the practical end, but honestly the practical end is really important because it's how we live our daily lives. Yes. And I think we've actually figured out that people do really want to hear about this because when we solicited questions from listeners, they were overwhelmingly about work and mm. work-life balance and academia mm-hmm. and all the stuff that we can speak to in our work lives. Yes. So I think this will be, if not sexy, super helpful. Yes. Yeah? I think another reason you're apprehensive about this episode is that mm. it covers stuff that you haven't totally figured out yet. Yes. And I think we both like to talk about stuff from a perspective of having figured it out. Yes. Like giving advice. I think you nailed it. That's absolutely it. I, when we, when I, we did the body episode, I'm like, yes, I went from like totally hating myself and having like, like disordered eating to like living this incredible right. life and talking about a work life balance. I feel like I need to like, I need to go to a 
work-life balance doctor. Like I don't, I feel like I am not in a position to comment on it, but I will say that in the 10 years that I've been doing this, that there are things that work and there are things that don't work. Right. Your work is unconventional. Mm -hmm. What do you do for a living, by the way? I'm a baker. (laughs) (laughs) That was, that I was wondering what you're going to come up with. And that was not on the list. I don't know how many people are going to listen to this podcast who are in your line of work exactly. Um, but there are elements of it that apply outside of just your career right. as, as a singer, songwriter, producer, somebody in the entertainment industry. Yeah. What do you think those, um, applicable elements are the, the ones that maybe can extend to people beyond just your sphere? Yeah. Well, I think, I think there are a lot of people that are compelled to do and make creative things, but don't know how to make a living out of it or, or find consistency or balance or, you know, feel like they do lots of different jobs. I think there's a lot of people, especially like around our age and younger that are doing, they're not just making one thing. They're not just going to this one job. They're Absolutely. Doing, they're doing, there's lots of side hustles, you know? For sure. And, um, and honestly, I've, that really resonates with me. Yes, I'm a singer-songwriter, but I also, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, acting in a movie and I'm composing for a film and I'm doing spoken word and speaking also about mental health stuff. So you have a lot of plates spinning. Yes. And a lot of people, I think you're right. I think a lot of people our age have a lot of plates spinning. I think as I get older, I realize it's so frustrating to, to feel like, God, there's only 24 hours in the day. Yeah. And you yeah. really have to, I feel like I've gotten to a place where I'm like, okay, where can I make concessions? Because mm-hmm. if I, t- if I listen to my body the whole day, and I get all my work done. Do I have time for relationships? Do I have time to connect with my family? Totally. Do I have time to clean the house? Do I have time to prepare food that feels good for my body? Do I have time to care for other creatures? It starts to feel like a lot to hold all at once. And then as you, if you're in a position where you're doing lots of different tasks for a certain job, or you have multiple jobs to bring a yeah. steady income, you not only have to find that balance within work, but also all of the stuff at home. Yes. And I don't know that I figured that out yet. That's something that like routine is something I've been craving. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the most important thing I did for me was to move away from a city. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like I, I loved living in Seattle and I considered moving to LA. I considered moving to New York. When I came out to Massachusetts, it was, it felt like the best way to care for myself. Ah, I made me feel like when I went to LA or I went to New York or I traveled for work, that that would be very intentionally based about work. Like, Mm -hmm. and I could really focus at home, making a routine, having a balance, building that garden. Can I tell you why that surprises me? Hmm. I would think that for someone who craves structure, this feels like a very unstructured way of life. Mm. I mean, I'm thinking about living in a city where you've got like the bus schedule and um, like times when people are out and times when people aren't out and businesses that are only open particular hours. And like, like, I don't know, for some reason that to me feels more regimented and structured Mm. than life out here. Um, But you don't have that experience. No, I think also I'm such a, I'm a, I'm a night owl. I like to be busy and do work 
at night or more in the evening. And I've never been able to like, it's been the most frustrating thing of living in a city is that everybody goes to sleep when I'm ready to do things. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, And so I never, that never sat well with me anyway. I didn't, I didn't really utilize that. This idea of structure. Yeah. I say that like, it's just a foregone conclusion. Like, of course people with bipolar disorder need structure Mm -hmm. because when I first met you, I, th- I saw what you did for a living and I, I, I saw your what your schedule was like and I thought, oh my God, that would drive me insane. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to do that. Um, do you think that with, with bipolar disorder comes a need for structure or that, that structure benefits people with bipolar disorder? I think structure benefits people with bipolar disorder. I think the impulse is to not have it because at least for me, I felt like, no, I need chaos. It's how I make things. It's where my brilliance comes in. My yeah, you genius, talked about this yeah. in our first episode. Yeah, yeah, my genius is only present when I have like created chaos. Mm-hmm. And I think that I've also gone in the other extreme where I have been like, okay, at 10 a.m. I do this and at 11 a.m. I do this and everything's really structured. But I don't know. I don't know how it is for other people with bipolar disorder. But if I don't achieve that <laughs> or I don't follow that uh-huh. regimented plan, I start feeling really bad. You start feeling like you failed. If I miss one or two things, I'm done. Yeah. I like, I, I've, I fucked up. I'm a fuck up. I right. can't do anything. Right. And here it is again. And I can't do, you know, like, well, and you're only going, failing yourself. Right. It's exactly. not like, you know, I won't show up to work on time and I'm going to piss my boss off. You're, yeah. you're only really accountable. I mean, it's, that's not true. You're definitely accountable to other people, mm-hmm. but in terms of maintaining that structure, you're only accountable to yourself. Right. I, I would say physical sort of structure, right, like right. physical time frame. Right. One thing that really worked for me was, uh, man, it was just like, I would say it was the Mecca of work-life balance. <laughs> was I think about two years ago well because I was writing my book so the work oh, so you that needed I, a schedule the work that I needed to do was creative I yeah. needed to be able to write and edit right rather than saying no schedule at all and or the opposite uh-huh. of, of having everything be completely structured I said I need to do one creative thing a day and one active thing a day oh that's neat yeah and I had a morning routine uh-huh yeah so I structured my routine of I have tea in the morning I read a little bit of poetry mm-hmm. and then I have a small breakfast I watch a show or right. something to chill out mm-hmm. and then I start my work I don't have to start my work right away. I can do something active first, uh-huh. but just, I felt like I get into a place where I'm only doing work and I feel like my body suffers and right. I, I don't feel good. Or if I spend all my time being physical and don't put any time into work, I start feeling guilty. So that for me was a really good balance of, okay, what are my two goals? I'm reminded of this book that this guy named Cal Newport wrote called Deep Work. Mm. I read it last year and he talks about how our kind of consistent distractedness is preventing us from getting into what he calls deep work or what I've heard other people Mm. describe as flow. Mm. And he describes that as like when you're doing a particular task and you get complete, you know, that feeling where you're completely engrossed Engrossed. in it yeah, and you lose track of time. Yes. And to the point where like when you snap out of it, it kind of feels like you were dreaming or something, right? Like there's that kind of fuzzy feeling when you're stepping out of it. Yeah. Um, I'm fine. I find it's harder and harder for me to get into that. Were you able to get into that flow or to get into that 
space of yes. deep work. Yes. Yeah. When I make music or I create any sort of art or I'm writing poetry, <sighs> I'm able to snap into it so easily yeah. where nothing like I, I can't be bothered. Like right. I just it in it even if mm-hmm. I wanted to, I just can't be moved from it. And that's why I'm really grateful for being in the studio. Like when I'm in the studio, it's you're focused on the music. Like, yeah. There's not a lot else you can think about. But I find it's just, it's tricky. And Newport says that you have to, it takes practice. So you have to condition your brain to get into that, that flow. Right. And he said that one of the most important ways of conditioning your brain is not to stimulate yourself. In fact, it's the opposite. He says you have to get used to being bored. He said like being bored is a critical part of the creative process of the productive process. You have to let yourself like zone out and be bored and let your thoughts wander. Um, but we have, you know, and obviously the Southern Catherine price talks about how to break up with your phone also that we've become conditioned to just constant stimulation. And, um, that, that in a lot of ways is a survival technique. So if you get used to being stimulated, your kind of like reptile brain thinks it must be important because, because that that's could be how you're surviving, right? That could be, you know, predatory animals off in the distance or, you know, a storm coming or yeah. so if there's stimulus, your body's like, Oh shit, that must be important. I'm going to zone in on it. Right. Um, but so you found it pretty easy then to the nature of your work, like your actual yeah. work, you find it easy to get into the flow. Right. Well, and I have, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I, my favorite thinking time and time to sort of decompress is, is at night or early in the morning and I don't touch my phone and I yeah. just, I, I, I guess I call it daydreaming. I just like, I just let my mind go and I like to plan things out or think about, you know, what projects I want to yeah. do and how I want them to mold, be molded and what shape I want my career mm-hmm, to take mm-hmm. and, um, what personal things I want yeah. to achieve. And, um, that's my favorite time. It's just like, just a really sleepy, you know, just in bed, just thinking of things. You know, I love that idea also because I haven't thought about this before, But I wonder on a level that we're not totally aware of, what does it do to your brain when the first thing you do as soon as you wake up is to look at this incredibly bright, colorful, stimulating thing? Your brain can't compete with creating what that phone can create, right? Yeah, yeah. There's like, well, it can, but not in terms of like, you know. It's not tactile. Right, yeah. Uh, I wonder how much that sort of drains us of, creative energy like you know to watch to see like five incredibly stimulating things before you even get out of bed in the morning I wonder if you kind of save that as a resource because I kind of think it it takes almost as much energy to like really pay attention and consume something as it does to write Mm -hmm. like I always tell my students if you're reading correctly reading should be very difficult yeah um it should be really active and you should get into that same feeling of flow or deep work while you're reading if you're doing it correct I say correctly but you know what I mean that I wonder if it doesn't consume a lot of energy that could be spent later on coming up with new ideas. Yeah. You know, if you just wake up and you have like a blank slate. Well, and I would say too, for me, I guess with sort of bipolar disorder and not just, you know, juggling lots of things and finding routine at home, I would say the most 
um, times I've spiraled out of control or felt my, I've never felt more manic depressive than traveling. I feel really safe here. Mm -hmm. I feel real, like this is my home. This is, and when I travel, everything is just up in the air. Right. And I'm very, like, I'm very proto about, like, the foods that I eat. And I don't know. Like, I, the more I'm talking about it, the more I'm like, oh, maybe I am really, like, I'm becoming more type A than I think. Because I don't think this sounds like you being type A or being a diva or anything. It's just you just, you've learned through habit yeah like through having to repeat this over and over again yeah you've learned what makes you perform and you travel for so many different reasons you yeah. need kind of like different preparation and different energy levels for everything that you go and do right right and you also i will say this i know that there are a lot of people i'm sure who listen who travel for work a lot but one big difference is that when you travel for work you do something that is uniquely emotionally draining a yeah. lot of the time. Yeah. Um, but a lot of us have work that's incredibly emotionally draining mm -hmm. and nerve wracking. And yeah. um, so that's, a th I think, something that people too can relate to. But how do you, have you developed any strategies that are effective? Like if you're, do you try to create like a, like an artificial sort of temporary stability while you're there or like a home-like atmosphere while you're there or what? What tips have you kind of come up with to manage your bipolar disorder while you're traveling? So I try to do that. I try to be in a position where, like, if it's just one night, I just, it, it feels like it takes more work to fully unpack. And But if I'm in a place for longer than two days, I completely unpack my entire suitcase. Mm -hmm. I put it in the drawers. I line all my stuff out. I, like, know where everything is. Uh -huh. And I try to keep my room really clean. Mm -hmm. I don't like to let housekeeping in. Like, I just... I just, I want to pretend that it's my home so that I know when I'm supposed to come home and I know where things are. That's interesting. So that doesn't stress you out. I feel like that might stress me out because then I think, oh Lord, when I get out of here, I'm gonna have to like pack again. It's, well, I guess you have to anyway, but you like really are settling in. Yes. But I think the benefits way out, way outweigh the um, yeah. negatives. It's right. just, it feels like a place I can care for. I need to care for something. And I always take my little beeswax candles with mm -hmm. me. I always carry them and I'll, I'll put them around. I like to have them next to the bed because I like to have candles next to the mm -hmm. bed. I, there is something sweet that we do too, that I think really helps me grounded, but that's like, we FaceTime all the time. Yes. I love that. Yeah. And we FaceTime sleep together. Yes. And, and we had, but we had to do, we had to kind of find a balance too with FaceTiming. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I, one, what, what we kind of realized was that when you're really busy or I'm really busy mm -hmm. at home, the kind of connection that we can have is very shallow mm -hmm. and that it was almost creating I don't know. It's like when you have, when the only contact you have is really superficial and unsatisfying, it was mm -hmm. like getting a taste of Splenda or something, yeah. you know, you're like, it tastes good, but it's not, it's not, it's not fulfilling my soul. Yeah. Right. It's not nurturing me. And that was really tough. And we kind of have had to like balance, but, um, being able to have you sleep with me on FaceTime. And I think there are probably a lot of couples who do this, who, are, so, who do yeah. long distance kind of stuff, um, makes me feel um, like really deeply connected to you and part of your schedule. Right. And mm -hmm. it, it makes, it also kind of gives me a sense of your, where your circadian rhythms are and kind of, you know, like I, I, I can hear you breathing and those, those yeah. things that I think are really important to like staying yeah. in touch with somebody. Totally. And I try to, I try to also make it 
make my time when I travel fun. So yeah. I, what I used to do is I used to pack my entire schedule where I'd be like, okay, I have meeting, you know, Kim for brunch and uh-huh. then I'm going to see Rose later. And then I'm going to like, I have Love all these plans. All these people you anyway. mentioned, by the way. <laughs> I'm going to see all my people. Yeah. And then what would happen is that I would start to get anxious or if, if, if something happened or I got panicky or something about... I would have to cancel and then feeling I'd feel guilty for canceling. And so I had to start totally really managing expectations. Right. Not just for other people, but also for myself. Right. Like, okay, I'm traveling. I'm not here for a vacation. Yeah. If I was here on vacation, maybe I would, it would be freer and I could, you know, totally more flexible. But if I'm, Traveling for work, it's okay that it's just for work. And if I just see one person or I don't see anybody, Mm -hmm. no one's going to be mad at me. Right. You know? I didn't know anybody who, like, made a living off of being in the music industry before I met you. So just... And and this is not to say that your experience is typical. I think observing it, what what I think I've noticed most is the variety of reasons that you travel for work. Mm the variety of demands that it places on you, like psychologically. Right. Sometimes it'll be like a really stressful meeting. Sometimes it'll be a show for like sort of a smaller group of people and you're not as nervous about it. Sometimes it's a really big show. Sometimes it's something really high stakes. Sometimes it's like an audition. And it seems like there are, there's so little that's sort of in your control. Right. It's not like people who, you know, I don't know, go to the corporate office in Iowa city every few weeks for a corporate meeting where they know exactly what to expect. Right. On top of all of this is the fact that the work you're doing, and I think especially with your last album, um, is about stuff that is so often like difficult to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like a huge amount of stress and instability and just your ability to navigate that while also having a disorder that I have, I think is really remarkable. But from my perspective, what I think you do really well is you give yourself like time to relax and unwind and yeah. do stuff that feels good. Right. right. So to do to indulge in stuff for your senses, like right. to get your hair done or mm-hmm. um, like uh, it seems like that's something that you really like to do is like go yeah. and just like get your hair washed and blow dried so that you can kind of I feel get clean. My, and I get a blowout almost everywhere I travel. It is like the best $30 spent. I didn't know what a blowout was until I met Mary, but now I know. <laughs> It's just so nice. And you make time to go to coffee shops that you like or, you know, to do work in coffee shops or go to restaurants that sound good to you mm-hmm. so that you're not just... Because I, I do notice sometimes, especially when the stuff that you have to do on these work trips is not until, like, later in the evening, you'll be, like, in your hotel room, like, ordering room service and alone, and mm-hmm. I can, like, kind of feel your mental health sort of, like, dipping yeah. as the day goes on. Right. So difficult to want to leave a place that's comfortable, that I feel safe. Sometimes I, you know, I start to get anxiety going outside anywhere and I have my little corner of the woods and I feel safe here. And when I go to my hotel room, I feel safe in my hotel room. And I think honestly, that leads to a lot of people within the entertainment industry feeling really depressed. You get to a certain place where you forget how to connect with people. Mm. And I, I'm going to start crying. I just, I used to, I used to make eye contact with people. I used to smile at every single person. And it was so, I love to live life that way. And then something happened after, you know, after 2014 and like my success happened. And I, I don't know, there's something that happened when you're, that happens after you're, you reach something where 
I don't know if it happens for everybody else, but I just felt like the connections I started having with people where I expected them to be, to meet me with the kind of vulnerability that I bring to the table or, or it to be genuine. I started feeling like, Oh, my personhood has become a commodification. Oh, right. I'm not just having a conversation with somebody and expecting like, and going to have this rewarding experience. They are getting social points for having a conversation with me. Right. And then they want evidence of that by a photo with me. Right. And it's hard not to see it as an exchange like that. Right. I have since sort of shed that belief system. I don't, I believe that people are just creating their own memories and they just want to remember things. And at that time was incredibly isolating. And I realized I couldn't make eye contact with people anymore because then I I sort of get the double take. That's like, are you, Uh you know, and I didn't, I I hated that feeling. Right. Right. So I think maybe when I go to big cities or when I travel, I, I kind of, I put my head down. I don't, I don't want to make that eye contact. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go out of my hotel room because I don't know what's out there. I'm just realizing or remembering that, but I remember that your Tinder bio said, I hate talking about my job. Mm. I can tell you don't like talking about this. Like, I can tell this is not fun for you to talk about. You think? I yeah. think this seems more unpleasant a topic than anything else we've talked about in this yeah, podcast. Yeah, I can feel like... <laughs> yeah, like, I can feel... I just, I feel your body, ener- your your energy. Um, and I just, so I just want to thank you for ruining our podcast. <laughs> Ooh, that was a gamble. That one was a gamble. <laughs> I was like, oh, I hope this one lands. Um, but what I want to offer is... I think you've already shared a lot that's been super helpful. Like, mm. that, you know, people need varying degrees of structure... You kind of maybe just need to like listen to your own needs. Yeah. And, and um, also you've given some ideas for like what you've done on the road that's worked for you. Totally. But I want to give you space here to like, if you want to shift and talk about this more generally, instead of just talking about your yeah. work, we can do that. Well, I think too, there was something like at that time where I, I'll call it sort of a breaking where I, all these incredible things were happening to me and I'm on like my fifth flight for the week I'm flying first class. Everything's amazing. And I want the plane to go down because I'm so fucking exhausted. Yeah. I'm so tired and I'm living my dream. I'm like, I, I think I want to die and I'm living my dream at the same time. I think there are lots of people who've experienced a version of that. I think not so too. just in your, not just in your line of work. But I think that that's probably more relatable than you think it is. Right. There, there is a point at which you've worked so hard and you get to a point where like, you're doing the thing, you're doing it. And yet it's incredibly difficult and draining and, um, doesn't feel sustainable. And you're like, I worked to get here and now being here kind of sucks. I think a lot of people can really relate to that. Right. Um, well, and that's why I was really grateful to be able to take a pause and assess what was the most important thing to me Yeah, was the most important thing to me. Like continuing, like I think secrets had just gone gold. Like I was on my third tour that year. I hadn't been home in like four months. God. And I like all my stuff was in storage. Like I just, I was like, what, what do I want out of this? What is my version or idea of success? being able to step back and evaluate, okay, if I want the plane to go down, then something like this isn't right. Yeah. And it was a great opportunity for me to, I had to continually reiterate to my team and the label at the time to say, 
I have bipolar disorder. I'm not, I can't do it like anybody else does it. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't know how they do it, but I know for me, I'm not going to survive. I won't, yeah. I won't, I won't get out of this alive if, if you work me this hard. Right. Right. And I think for me, I had to get, I had to get out of the system and I had to figure out something that worked for me. Right. But I think for so many people that are in an industry like that or similar, anybody creating something, you feel like there's a clock and you feel like if something's going really well, you have to, you have to capitalize on it and you can't take time for yourself or else it's all going to go away. And there's a finite amount of money or, or attention and you want to capture it. Yeah. And it's not fair to yourself. And it also doesn't give the benefit to your listener or your audience to stick, to stick with you, you know, like through your, through your process. Yes, definitely. And I think it's benefited me greatly to give the benefit of the doubt to my audience and my listener that I, I'm like, no, I just, I have to do what's best for me. Right. I've seen you do it. I've seen you, um, several times when I can see that you want to talk to your fans and hear their stories and interact with them, but you just, you don't have it to give Mm -hmm. and you have to say that you have to like protect yourself. Right. Yeah. How, how, what has your experience as an educator, as a professor being bipolar? Right. Well, um, so it is like a, you can disclose it obviously with your employer as it's, it's like a protected status, right? Mm -hmm. So you can tell your employer like during the hiring process and that's not, it's not okay to discriminate against somebody based on being like having bipolar disorder. Right. Um, but that being an issue through like human resources and that being an issue in your actual, like, you know, day-to-day life are two different things. Um, but I would say I have been open with colleagues. I've been selectively open with students. Mm-hmm. Students come to me and are experiencing similar issues because faculty I think are usually along with, you know, people who work in residence halls and things like that. And obviously like the counseling center faculty are like the first line of defense when it comes to students experiencing mental health stuff. Usually students will find either an RA or a professor that they connect with and, you know, come to them and say, here's what I'm struggling with. And I'm very open. Like on my syllabus, I always say like, if you are struggling and don't know where to turn, come and talk to me Mm -hmm. first. Right. Maybe I don't say first, but you know, like I'm, I'm here for you as a resource. Um, and I definitely am. I'll, I will, I'll help them make an appointment. I'll walk them over to the counseling center, whatever I need to do. So if they come to me and they're vulnerable, then I am vulnerable right back. Like I'll tell them, like, I also struggle with that, or I have bipolar disorder. Or when I was in college, I experienced really severe anxiety and depression. And Mm -hmm. here's something that I did. Like, here's something that helped. Yeah. But I think it's really important to be vulnerable with students that way. I'm not saying that every every educator should do that because Mm. that's uncomfortable. It does make you vulnerable. Mm. And do you think that it puts you sort of under a microscope? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, I've had so few people around me in academia who have been really open publicly about mental health stuff. Mental health problems are epidemic in academia epidemic with graduate students. I'm, I'm half joking when I say this, but you have like a self-selected group of like pretty neurotic, nerdy. Yeah, that's true. Right. Like cerebral people. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the people I know that have gone into higher ed and I'm like, Oh yeah, we're all nuts. Neurotic. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Neurotic. You are living a life of the mind. As I always hear people say for better or for worse, you're 
whole idea of your self-worth comes from your productivity and measurables. And that's where I think it might have some resonance with your line of work. But yeah, I try to be open with it. But there's also the issue of you, you mentioned if it makes you live under a microscope, I would, I would say no. Again, it's, it's hard for me to speak outside of just my department. It's like as a faculty member out of my, outside of my department, I've had a fabulously understanding, open, supportive, wonderful department. There's a hierarchy of stability in higher education. So the most vulnerable by far are graduate students. I say that not because their position is vulnerable, but because they lack the institutional protection that faculty members have. Mm. Their success is contingent upon their progress and their continuing work there. Um, at my institution, and this is just a brief content warning for um, that I'm going to mention uh, gun violence and suicide in a moment. So if that's troubling to you, maybe fast forward a bit. Um, but at my institution, the University of Arkansas, the office right next door to mine, about 10 years before I got there, there was a PhD student who um, had been, you know, struggling with his mental health and had been in the PhD program for like eight or nine years. And the English department convened and decided that um, he had been in the program for too long and they had to let him go. They met and decided to do this. And I don't know if they announced it to the student or what happened, but Um, Over his lunch break, he went to Walmart and bought a gun and came back to campus and the office right next door to mine burst into this like beloved professor's office and shot him to death in in his office. And um, I remember when I heard that story thinking it is a, a thousand wonders that doesn't happen more often. I think a lot more often than that, it's just either people who leave So the rate at which people leave graduate programs is astounding. Um, So according to the Council of Graduate Schools, um, that the completion rate for all doctoral students after 10 years is about 56.6%, which is pretty low. Um, And by discipline, um, it can be even lower than that. So in the humanities, the percentage is um, 33%. So 33% of people who begin a PhD will actually finish it. So graduate students, I would say, are that first level of being really, really vulnerable. What I tell people who are thinking about graduate school who struggle with their mental health or just anybody is it is an antagonistic system. It was designed to be antagonistic. So in the United States, we got this idea of graduate programs from Germany, from German research institutions. We we took our whole model of the of the academy of the division of, of universities into colleges and the structure of colleges with deans and, you know, chairs of departments, all that stuff all came from German research institutions. So when we started modeling our universities off of that, that system that we modeled it off of is an antagonistic conflict driven system, wherein basically I imagine it like, and it was, of course, this was all men. So I'm imagining some you know, some nerdy man in a tweed jacket walking into a building with like a stack of papers. <laughs> and there's a mean old professor like with the, you know, like the like scary looking Harry Potter robes on and stuff <laughs> like standing at a at a podium or something who's like, prove it to me. Right. You yeah. prove to me that, you know, your shit and I'm going to press back on you and fuck with you and ask you questions until you crumble. It's that's what I mean by antagonistic. Yeah. It's me versus you. We're yeah. not coming together to create knowledge. Right. You do something and prove to me that you can do it. And I will 
if you're successful and you make it through this gauntlet of torture mm -hmm. and the like erosion of your self-esteem and your confidence, if you make it through much like a frat hazing, then I will bestow upon you this gift. Right. And I think it's one of those perpetuating cycles where it's like, it was awful for me. So I'm going to make it fucking awful for you. Right. right? Um, so that's what I mean. It's not a nurturing collaborative system and it's, it's masculine in that way. Mm. That's why people who are feminist scholars or who are interested in a feminist approach to graduate studies, my colleague, Jasmine Lee, um, who I'm presenting with at a conference next week is doing this, this work about feminist mentorship and graduate programs because feminist mentorship goes against the whole idea of the graduate school kind of system. Mm. Think about even that word that you're defending a thesis, right? Right. That you're going to a thesis defense or a dissertation of defense where you have to like actually defend your work against attackers, you know? So I never consider that. Yeah. I mean, especially in to have mental health issues in every program, every department is different, but I will say at big uni research universities, that's the model. It's changing a little bit, I think, as we're more aware of what this whole thing does to students. It's really mm -hmm. terrible, but that's the model. And in fact, um, for my dissertation, I looked a lot at the history of higher ed. So colleges as an institution started in this country as theological schools, seminary schools, divinity schools, that kind of stuff. So like Harvard and a lot of the other old, um, like really prestigious institutions started off as theological schools, right, for men. Mm -hmm. um, then the kind of liberal arts model was born. And these are the Ivy League schools, what they call some of the public Ivies, you know, like uh, they were not designed to train you for a job. Right. They were designed to give you a four year sort of break from reality where you could go and ask questions and explore different ideas. And um, it was for the children of very wealthy people. This was right. something that very privileged people did before they went off into the workforce. They were right. not job training sites. It was for socializing and joining weird skull and bone societies <laughs> and frats and all this stuff. Right. Yeah. But it was still very antagonistic. So I would read all the in, in my research, I would read like transcripts of classroom interactions. And it was very much from, like like what time? Like if anywhere from the late 1600s, which, which is when schools like Harvard that were founded so cool. up until like the early 1800s. And the classroom interactions were extremely antagonistic. So it would be like, Johnny, what did you think? Um, you know, John Locke was saying in this passage and Johnny stands up and says what he thinks John Locke said in this passage. And the professor is like, actually, you moron, you're wrong. And here's why. Right. That's the that was the whole gist of it. The whole touchy feely. I, I always associate this with creative writing programs. Mm -hmm. um, that was a turn that took place in the 1960s. Mm. So the university became much touchier, feelier in the 1960s um, when there was a sort of turn toward making it softer and more inclusive. And it had mm. sort of these more feminist sort of principles guiding it. Mm. And it was also a response to universities were becoming more diverse yeah. um, because this was like after World War II right. and the GI Bill. So you didn't have it was it wasn't right. just the kids of rich people going to college anymore. Right. This was also, you know, I'm backing up about a hundred years, but in the 1800s land grant, the, the moral act, which created land grant institutions, that was, those were when all the big state universities right. were founded. Right. And that was so that they could train future farmers in the ways of like agriculture and mechanics. So that's, this is where it becomes sort of like woven into, um, how you make money and getting a job and right. preparing you for careers and shit like right. this. But through the whole system, so that would have been around the time of like the industrial revolution. Yes. It was all like hand in hand with 
yeah. work bells and things mm-hmm. like that. Definitely. But so, yeah, I would say, and I know I'm getting really off track here, but so that's just like a really quick mm-hmm. summary of the university. I would say where we are now is um, since the 1980s, so like since the Reagan administration, I would say, because I think there was sort of a heyday for liberal arts and colleges, and I think it would be mm-hmm. between like the 60s and the 80s. Yeah. Then the Reagan administration really started looking at um, education as sort of an American investment and Mm -hmm. we need to get our money's worth out of it. And this was also around the time of the cold war. So there was this idea that we were like competing with other countries in terms of producing students who were good at math and science and this kind of shit. So there was this concern that America was lagging behind all these other countries in math and science. There's still this concern, even though it's really not true. It hasn't been, it had, that hasn't been shown to be true. Um, but Also, I mean, we have the greatest people from all over the world come to attend our research institutions. They're the best in the world. So I don't know where all this comes from, but Reagan really started this idea that we're just bad at math and science. And so we need to put all of our energy and resources that way. Otherwise, the Soviets were going to go in the space race and China was going to take over the economy and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So we're still kind of there. You notice it, right? right? Yeah. Like that's all I hear. STEM fields, math and science. And I'm not at all shitting on them. I just think like holistically, of course, I'm I'm selfish. I think the humanities are important to include in there. But that's where I think we are now is this awkward space where universities cannot be seen as job training sites. And yet they must be. We have economically positioned them to be that way. Right. But none of us know what we're doing. And I'm sorry, continue. No, I'm just like go ahead, please. That included with the cost of it. Like you can't say that it's going to be job training sites. And also say that this is a time where you develop and grow and it's okay to fuck up here and it's okay to learn. You don't have to know what you're doing at the same time accruing all of this debt. That's exactly right. And if you have a mental health problem, if you have any sort of mental issue going into that system Mm -hmm. with all of the like the institution itself being so deeply flawed. Right. I mean, good luck. I mean, absolutely. And um, I think. That's that's where this gets dangerous. Like you said, there's more at stake now. Student loans have officially overtaken credit cards as the largest source of private debt in this country. Um, It is the only kind of debt that you cannot escape through uh, declaring bankruptcy. Um, If you um, fail to pay your student loans back, uh, you the Department of Education can sue you. They can garnish your wages. So that's why I think it's important to be explicit about the risks of higher ed, um, about where the academy is right now and about why and how. Through history, it has become as um, hostile and inimical and unnurturing as it is. I think it's important to understand the history of higher education as, mm-hmm. a, as, a, as a cultural institution. Right. Um, so graduate students, like I said, are definitely at the at the very bottom of this sort of hierarchy within the institution. And statistics bear out how difficult life is for graduate students. Uh, so I'm not making a distinction between people who enter graduate school with pre-existing mental health issues or people who develop mental health issues once they get to graduate school, which can also happen. Mm. Um, but I did a quick check on the current statistics. These are always depressing, but the where they, the way they stand right now, and this was reported by the Chronicle of Higher Education, 
is that graduate students are six times more likely than the general population to experience depression and anxiety. Wow. Um, 40% of graduate students they surveyed fall on the moderate to severe end of that spectrum, and that's compared to like wow. 6% of the general population. Wow. 40%? Yes. And of course, with uh, trans and gender nonconforming graduate students, that number is significantly higher, as you might imagine. Yeah. Um, so you might not have problems going in, but you might have them going out. Right. And I think the reasons for this and for being a graduate student being so hard are complicated. I think, um, there's the fact that you're really isolated generally. I think that has a lot to do with it. I think the fact that the pay is awful. Um, so you are under constant financial stress. Um, like a lot of money for a graduate student would be making about $30,000 a year. Yeah. Um, but there are other students who are on like 12000 to $15,000 a year stipends. Um, so there's that. There's also like constant feelings of inadequacy and lack of support from advisors and um, imposter syndrome and lack of reinforcement and positive feedback from people. Right. Um, and the fact that the work that you're doing is so abstract, it can feel like it doesn't matter. Right. And I think that... You know, we were talking about Karl Marx before. Marx would call this the alienation of labor. Mm. He said that there is a um, a real crisis happens in the mind of the worker when you can no longer see or experience or appreciate the actual fruit of your labor. When it's something yeah. like, for example, on an assembly line, when it becomes something that you never get to see or experience. Yeah. I think it's that way in graduate school, too. I think you become really alienated from your work. Right. And the fact that 40 percent of people who finish a Ph.D., for example, will not have a job lined up at graduation. And if they do have a job lined up, um, it is very unlikely that it's going to be a tenure track job. So it's sort of like the gold standard. They're more likely to be in sort of tenuous adjunct or instructor positions, or maybe they don't end up in higher ed at all. And there are people who go and get PhDs who don't want jobs in academia and they call those Alt-Ac jobs, which stands for like alternative to academia. Um, so I'm not talking about those, but anyway, so grad students at the very bottom of that hierarchy and then adjunct or contingent laborer. Mm -hmm. So these are people who um, may or may not have like the terminal degree in their field, but they get hired in sort of an ad hoc as needed basis to teach courses at colleges. Usually the pay is really bad. They don't have access to all of the resources that faculty do. So right. they might not get to use the gym or the library or, you know, they might have to pay for that's parking. Crazy. Yeah, that's and the scary thing is, is that big universities are increasingly relying on adjunct labor very heavily. Right. It's really scary. Then there would be part time instructors kind of the same similar situation, maybe a little bit more job security, but adjuncts and part-time instructors generally have to apply for reapply for their jobs every semester. Then you have non-tenure track faculty and then tenure track faculty. It's sort of like the top of the heap. Mm -hmm. But the reason I'm saying all of this is you have layers and layers of people who are other than tenured faculty, anxious, who are in a precarious, tenuous, insecure position. Um, you are constantly having to defend your existence to the university because mm -hmm. the university is under humongous budgetary restrictions, particularly public universities, but private universities too. As exciting as academia is and as much as I love it, those are sort of where the problems mm -hmm. come in. Yeah. I have a stupid question. Sure. There are no stupid questions. If students are in so much debt and every year the cost of education goes up, and there are less and less tenure and tenure track faculty in universities. Mm -hmm. Where does the where is the money going? 
Oh man, uh, that's a good question. It's not, I think that the money is going anywhere different. It's that institution, public institutions are getting so much less money from the state Mm-hmm. That they're having to make up for that by inflating the cost of tuition. I see. Also, a lot of institutions are allocating their money really poorly and building a bunch of really stupid shit that they don't need to build. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite examples of this was at LSU, uh, which is, you know, Louisiana State University, a huge mm-hmm. public uh, research institution. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, a really good example of frivolous, out of control spending at universities. LSU built an $85 million recreation center for students that included a lazy river that where students could like inner tube down this lazy river that spelled out LSU. Yeah. It's a grotesque monstrosity of a display. I want to do it. Me too. Oh, it's great. I want to go on the lazy river. (laughs) Me too. Um, But students are in order to draw students to campus, they're, you know, increasingly having to, ramp up the amenities that are available. Right. And I don't know, the whole higher ed mess, if you are, if it's something where you're like, I just, I have to go, you know, let's say I have a career that in order for me to move ahead in my career, I have to get a master's degree, right? Or I have to get a PhD if I really want to do what I want to do. Or maybe you're like I was and you're like, I'm dead set on the professoriate. Like I'm dead set on becoming a college professor. I'm going to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Or maybe... And I think that there's no shame in this. I think a lot of people do it. They just don't really know what they want to do yet. And it's a way to kind of like tiptoe into adulthood, but without really going into the workforce. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think, you know, like regardless of your reasons, I think it's important to remember the academy is largely in this country, a precarious place right now. If Betsy DeVos is any indication um, and the Trump administration's like attitude toward higher ed is any indication this is a it's a hostile time and like a hostile environment toward the university, which is already a hostile place. It was built to be antagonistic. It was not built to be a warm and fuzzy place. Mm-hmm. The most difficult part of a PhD program for me was not the academic work. It was that no one tells you what you're supposed to be doing. Part of getting your PhD is just successfully going through the gauntlet and mm-hmm. figuring out what you're supposed to do in order to get done. Right. So it's like a test of whether or not you can jump through the hoops and figure out what the hell you're supposed to be doing. You have to figure out what the hoops are. Right. (laughs) Right. In a in a field with very few tenure track job openings, this is not because I'm like incredibly brilliant or special or different in any way. I stuck with it. I finished my Ph.D. I got a tenure track job. I recognize, though, that um, that is I I am a rare sort of success story right now. Um, There are lots of people languishing on a very shitty job market. It's not your fault that the job market is that way. And I would say the best resource I can recommend um, if any people are interested in that, it, she doesn't speak specifically to having bipolar disorder or mental health issues, um, a book, and there's a website that accompanies it. And she also has a really active like Twitter and Facebook. Um, but it's a book called the professor is in, um, and it's Karen Kelsky, um, who is, who wrote, uh, who wrote this book. She was a tenured professor and department head at a research one institution. She's not anymore. Um, but her book, a hundred percent gave me what I needed to do to get a tenure track job. Um, so I can't recommend her highly enough. And of course I'll include links to her work and all that stuff. Um, I would also recommend 
there's a book that Sonia Foss wrote and I love her by the way. She's a communication scholar. Mm -hmm. So of course I love her. She does all this really sexy rhetoric stuff, but she co-wrote this book called destination, destination dissertation, a traveler's guide to a done dissertation. She helped me a lot when I was finishing it. So while you're looking into programs, um, visit campus and get into a position with a graduate student currently at that institution get into a situation where you can speak to them frankly and honestly and ask them what the program is like. Mm-hmm. Ask what the advisors are like. Ask what the chair is like. Ask if they are working you to the bone. Ask if they offer professional development or support for teaching assistants or graduate students. Ask if they are available. Ask what the counseling center is like. Mm-hmm. Um, any program that you apply to will let you come to campus as you're making your decision about where to go and they will let you talk to current graduate students. And if they don't make that opportunity available to you, don't go. Mm. Um, so I would say talk to people, not just faculty, not just the people who have an interest in getting you there, but talk to people who are actually in the program and get them to be honest with you about the level of support that they're getting. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, what for you, what helped you finish your dissertation? Like, did you have a routine? Did you have something that worked for you or what didn't work for you? What didn't work for me was drinking really heavily. Um, right. I say that, I don't know. I got it done. Yeah. Probably not very well, but you kind of said like in spite of, (laughs) in spite of, yeah. yeah. Um, what worked for me was, um, establishing really good relationships with other PhD students. Mm. That was really important. And that's kind of continued for you, for your success as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yes, absolutely. Like getting support from colleagues and also finding professors who I knew had my success and my mental health. Um, thank you, honey. As a priority, I found a dissertation director who had never directed a dissertation before. And I knew I was taking a risk in that regard, but he expected a lot from me, but was very compassionate with me. Mm. So I I knew I was going to be embarking on a four or five year journey. You you have to have good people around you. And the only way to know that that's going to happen is to talk to people before you get there. Mm -hmm. No matter how good or how prestigious a program is, it does not deserve your mental health and it will take it from you. Mm -hmm. It will. It is a system. Again, I can't repeat this enough. It is a system that is designed to be hostile to you and is designed to weed you out. It is designed for your failure, not for your success. Mm -hmm. It's not there for you to succeed. It is there to put every obstacle to your success (laughs) up in the way. And if you actually succeed, the the academy actually almost looks at you with shock. Like they're like, oh shit, you you did it, right? (laughs) Um, So I would just go into it sort of aware of that um, and look for resources on campus and colleagues who can support you and Go to conferences if you can afford to. This is another thing you should look at while you're looking at institutions is see if they support graduate student research and travel. They should fund you to go to conferences. If they don't, that's a red flag Mm -hmm. that they might not have the resources to help you just in general. Right. But you should be able to go to conferences on their dime. Mm -hmm. And that's so important because it will reinvigorate you and recommit you to the purpose of your field. And if you're not a true believer, you won't make it through this process. You you just won't. And if you do, it'll be at the expense of your sanity. So I would say to go to conferences where you connect with like, if it's social work, you need to go and like connect with like, why do I give a shit about social work or music education or um, you know, engineering or whatever it is, like just to like get into groups of people who remind you of why you're passionate about it. So that was really helpful for me going to conferences, connecting with colleagues, finding faculty members who actually cared about me. Also, um, I didn't 
set up a super rigid schedule, but I found an advisor who held me accountable in a way that I was comfortable with. Mm. And I asked for it. So you have to be comfortable advocating for yourself. So I would say, I told him, if I have just a totally open deadline, I will never finish this stuff. So I need, I need you to tell me when I need to have a chapter of my dissertation due to you. So I asked people to impose deadlines. Mm -hmm. I also just made my whole workspace at home was like dissertation central. So I had like, um, this was pre turnip, by the way, I had you'll for a reason you'll, you'll understand in a moment, huge poster boards and post-it notes and stuff stuck all over my floor and like on my walls where I'd like graphically organized all my ideas. Wow. Um, so that was really helpful. Like being able to actually like see the project as it materialized. Um, there are also so many good online support forums now, but I will say this, and this might be sort of controversial. I would even be careful of this with the professor is in deal. If you really want this, if you are just dead set on it, for me, it was like, I needed to be called doctor. I needed a PhD. I needed that credential. Like I needed oxygen. Nothing was going to stop me from it. You, I think you have to be a true believer in that way to get there. Otherwise it's just, it'll gnaw you up and spit you out, you know? And that's, it's probably also a sign if you're like, I can't do this anymore. It's probably a sign that like system, that institution, that program, they don't deserve your happiness. Get out of there and do something else. There's a million other things you can do. Right. So I just happened to be, you know, I'm I'm crazy. I wanted to be there. If you are a true believer and you know, you're going to get your doctorate, that's what you want. That's the future for you. You're not questioning it. I would be really careful not to surround yourself with the often well-deserved negativity about academia and about your field. Mm. I would avoid cynicism about your field. I had to deliberately distance myself from people who were cynical about teaching or grading or the academy or the job market. I had to actually sort of make myself delusional. Like I had to put blinders on and ignore the cynicism. You know, this is like, you were trying to make it in a field where nobody makes it. Yeah, there's no there's no way. There's no way. Well, and honestly, like, I feel like I just kind of kept going, but I didn't know what I was doing and kind of floating. Something just kind of landed on my lap. Like, I got this opportunity and I thought, shit, okay, I'm ready to work my ass off. I'm ready to do whatever it takes because yeah. this, is, this is it and I got to go. So I put the boosters on. And I just ran my ass as fast as I could because nobody gets the opportunity <laughs> like that, you know? Yeah. And I'll, let me ask you this. Did you get those messages, though? Did you hear cynical messages? Like, did you hear people who were like, you'll never make it? I mean, I know this is so opposite from from what you're talking about, but that's why I went to college was because, like, people told me I wasn't, like, that's all I heard was that I wasn't going to make it, you know? <laughs> like, I got my I got my degree because I was like, well, I'm going to be an educator. Oh, right. <laughs> Yeah. I was going to be a music teacher. Yeah. What I was going to do. I was really excited about it. Yeah. I was, I wanted to teach middle school music yeah. and high school and maybe run a music department. Yeah. And I, I taught lessons and I just felt, I was like, I love teaching. Yeah. It's going to be so much fun. So like I, the whole, my whole motto was that I'm not going to make it, <laughs> that it's impossible. So why would I even try? So your whole plan was for not making it. Yeah. I just, I just, there was no way that was going to happen. And I do think at the undergraduate level, that's what the institution is for me. It's, 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 I love the time when freshmen come to campus. It's just alive with possibility and hope. And I think in a lot of different ways, the best educational bang for your buck in the country is a community college. Right. The second best is, is honestly a small 
state college like the one that I go to, they're still not very expensive. They mm-hmm. do help students to get jobs. Um, right. I mean, I think that's that's wonderful. I can't speak for, you know, $100,000 a year private, you know, liberal arts education. If your family can afford that, great. If you want to take out loans or get grants or scholarships, whatever there's a point at which there, it is exciting to go there and it is possible and it will help you. Mm -hmm. I think I'm just talking about the world that gets really small as you keep going through the levels of academia. And I will say too, to be mindful of the fact that I'm talking about the humanities and social, the social sciences. That's my only experience. This is different when you're talking about law school or medical school or business school or graduate school in engineering. Um, But to some extent, this stuff is all true. So the mental health struggles that graduate students go tr- go through are, are universal. Mm-hmm. Um, but the humanities, for reasons I described earlier, are just under a more intense squeeze. Mm-hmm. Graduate school actually in academia are pretty kind to people who are in the sciences, who are in the hard sciences, because they have to lure them away from the private sector or right. from taking other government jobs that pay better. Right. Um, so often, um, like if you're a graduate student in engineering, you will get a significantly bigger stipend than a graduate student in creative writing. Sure. So it just mirrors the real world in that way. Yeah. Dig into the institution where you are looking into going. They should have specific mental health services and support groups available for graduate students, specifically for those. They should be explicit and open about that, about mental health. If you find them not mentioning it at all, that's a red flag. Ask current graduate students about the availability of their advisors. I can't tell you how many horror stories I hear from other institutions about professors who are on dissertation committees or thesis committees and don't show up to meetings or sleep through meetings or play with their phones throughout meetings Mm. or don't show up to thesis defenses who genuinely don't care about you. The academia is a little mirror of the real world in this way. There are a few wonderful people. There are a few terrible people. There's everybody in between. Um, You might have a bad experience, but the best way to safeguard yourself against that is to really investigate the program before you go, right? And if you're already in a program, um, this, this is the other thing. Why I say you need to be a capital T, capital B, true believer, is that what you'll find happens in a lot of graduate school experiences is that you'll get, I don't know, let's say it's a three-year master's program. You get a year and a half into it and you realize you don't like it anymore, but you've already put a fucking year and a half into it. And then you finish and you're miserable. That happens a lot. Or you don't finish and you feel like a huge failure and you just wasted all that time and money. So you're in an impossible position. Do everything you can to make sure that you are in fact a capital T, capital B, true believer. And it's kind of like the actual catch 22 where people are trying to say they're crazy. If you'll excuse me using a crude word to get out of the being in the war, but if they were really crazy, they'd want to stay. Um, that's what academia reminds me of. I would say to make sure that you're a true believer, try doing something else first. Like mm-hmm. this is, again, I'm just saying do exactly what I did because it worked, but um, I took at least two years between every step of the way, sort of just to make sure that it was something I really wanted to do. And at every juncture, I realized no matter how much money I could make doing this other thing I'm doing, I cannot be happy for whatever messed up, twisted reasons that I needed validation or I needed the credential or I needed prestige or whatever it was. I loved research. I loved teaching. I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. So I'll I'll hear a lot of people who say, I think I want to go to graduate school, but I don't know. I kind of don't really want to. I don't like it. I'm always like, 
do don't. not. Don't go. Don't no. do it. <laughs> there are so many other things you can do. And also, mm-hmm. even if you finish it, you don't have to keep doing it. You are never stuck. Um, my brother likes to see, say you're not a tree. You can get up and leave. Mm-hmm. Like you can move. You can change locations. You can change jobs. You can always change course. It's never too late. But I would just say, yeah, make sure you're going somewhere that is uh, like that values your mental health and your mental stability. Was that helpful? Yes. Immensely. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to get my PhD now. Heck yeah. <laughs> I'm going to become a Grammy nominated singer songwriter. Hell yeah. So, um, we are going to be doing a listener question episode that will only be available for our Patreon patrons mm-hmm. who are, um, at or above homeostasis. That's <laughs> five bucks a month. You get access to that. And we're going to be asking and we're going to be answering questions about work, productivity and academia in that special episode. So specific questions that you want answered. Yeah. So uh, if you go to our Patreon page, um, there'll be a post uh, that I will make so that you can submit those questions to us. Do you want to uh, move on to our segments? I'm so excited for our segment. Do you want to start with obsessions? Yes. Will you start? With my obsession? Yeah. Will you start with your obsession? Absolutely. Um, so my first obsession is, uh, football. Go Seahawks. Um, also I won't put any value judgment on this because I don't want to alienate anybody. I'm just going to make an observation. Hmm. The Patriots got defeated in the wild card game at home against the Tennessee Titans yesterday. Just take a moment of silence. A moment of silence. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. I mean, y'all won like 70,000 Super Bowls. I don't feel sorry for you. Go Seahawks. Um, okay. My second obsession, um, I am currently obsessed with this memoir that I'm reading and it's called in the dream house. And it's this memoir that was just released by Carmen Maria Machado, who's a queer novelist, essayist, and critic. It's told in a really unconventional style. The language is just gorgeous. The writing is really smart and evocative and the structure is, it's just, it's unlike anything I've ever read before. Mm -hmm. And it's also just absolutely gut wrenching. It's, um, about, um, a queer abusive relationship that she was in and her writing style is just, I mean, it's so powerful. There's sort of this like avant-garde feel to it, but it's really honest, really raw, beautifully written. Um, and she talks about growing up in a very religious household, something that might be interesting to you. Um, and then she spends, was this a a recent book? Yeah. It came out like a month ago. Oh, wow. And, um, she really pulls apart this stereotype type of like the sort of idyllic, safe, domestic, lesbian relationship, you know, like Mm -hmm. with the U-Hauls and the cats and all that. Mm -hmm. And, um, kind of explores this hidden unpublicized history of abuse in queer relationships, particularly queer domestic relationships. Um, and I'm actually going to be reading an excerpt from it during our poetry segment later. So I'll read an excerpt from that. My next obsession is I'm obsessed with this really weird, really silly article that I read in the New York times magazine this morning by this guy named Sam Biddle. Hmm. Biddle writes this like really beautiful encomium to his Roomba. And uh, he says that he's really comforted by his Roomba because it's a dumb robot. And I love the way he writes about it. So I just want to read it here. This is one of my favorite pieces of writing I think I've read lately. He writes about the, quote, reassuring, droning and clunking sound of a robot butler, smart enough to make my floor slightly cleaner, but too stupid to do anything else. This bumbling gadget obeys me and me alone. If I press its single button, it dies. 
while another press resumes the slow Sisyphean tidying. But what I appreciate most about the brain-dead Yuffie, which lacks any capability to connect to the internet or any other devices, is that I don't have to distrust it. The RoboVac is never up to anything but the business of dust collection, loudly and inefficiently, but completely automatically. <laughs> it can't talk to anyone or share anything. All it knows about me and my loved ones is that we could certainly do a better job cleaning on our own, a judgment that it will take to the dump when it finally dies. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I love that. So I'm obsessed with that. And then my final obsession is I'm obsessed with um, Newman's own, uh, those like minty fake Oreos. Oh, Yeah. Those are, I think they're the only like hippy dippy organic version of junk food that I've found that I actually like. I'm so glad. Yep, I'm really proud of it. Oh, and uh, Amy's fruit snacks. (laughs) And those are my obsessions. What are yours? I'm really obsessed with um, making waffles right now. Um, Wyatt got me a uh, waffle maker Mm -hmm. for Christmas, Mm -hmm. and it's a mini waffle maker, so you can have 50 of them. And I put blueberries in it. So I good. Just, now all I, just, I can't tell you how many times in my life I have craved waffles and not had that satiated. And now I just figured out how to make a crispy waffle. It's really changing my life. When I think about the reasons that people should be jealous of me, I can't blame them because I mean, because of being in a relationship with you. I mean, <laughs> you, like, yeah, I'm in a relationship with Mary Lambert. That's enough. But the fact that every morning you're like, what do you want for breakfast? And then like with all the energy and enthusiasm of somebody who's never done it before, like prepare me whatever I want for breakfast. It's unreal. I love to. The waffles with the blueberries have been fucking crazy. I've been putting like half a stick of butter per waffle, (laughs) per mini waffle. (laughs) And of course, I'm still obsessed with the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I think since we uh, last recorded, we have gone through... Two more seasons. Mm-hmm. Easily. Um, so we're catching up with the rest of the world. And the other thing that I'm enjoying, uh, which is, you know, by proxy also related to Real Housewives, is uh, Wyatt has this uh, blown up photo of Jiggy. Yes. Uh, one of Lisa Vanderpump's dogs. Uh-huh. Um, at their office, and I'm so glad that we got to bring it home. It's place of honor right now. My favorite thing right now is that we keep hiding it from each other and putting <laughs> it in random places. I walked into the bathroom, and it was sitting on top of the toilet. Oh, the best one. And also, this is a ridiculous it is it is a ridiculous oh, yeah, it's looking, not it's not just a dog it's a dog wearing like a sparkly tuxedo and with a rose in the foreground um it's preposterous it's huge earlier mary was in the bathroom and i could i could hear this just panic in her voice and she's like oh my god honey there's a huge spider in here she's like it's like the biggest spider i've ever seen and i, I could hear her panic and i was like oh my god okay i need to go get a paper towel and like get ready to kill it. i was like do you want me to come in and kill it and she's like i don't i don't know and i went in and so she's like it's behind the shower curtain it's behind the shower curtain and i pull back the shower curtain and the portrait of jiggy is in the shower <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right so those are my obsessions oh, waffles right. and uh real housewives so still beautiful <laughs> So we're now spinning the wheel. Okay. We're not doing tarot cards anymore. No. And we're not doing listener questions anymore. No. That's behind a paywall. Yeah. Officially. We might bring it back. Yeah. What we're thinking is this is a rotating. It's the wild card segment. Wild card. The rotating wild card segment. Yeah. And this week's rotating wild card segment is. is... Gay or, or straight. Not... Oops. Gay or straight. 
gay or, or straight? straight. <laughs> Should we do gay or straight? I was gonna say gay or not gay. Okay, let's do gay or not no, no, gay. No, but I like gay or straight. Gay or straight. Yeah, yeah. Which we realize that that's reductive, but this is a yeah. reductive segment. Yeah. And it's also a lightning round. Do you want me to go first with my five, or do you want to go with your five? Should we alternate? No, no, no. You should go first with your five. Ooh, you think? Yeah. Okay, so I'll I'll ask you first. Okay. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Tugboats. Gay. The chord D minor. Straight. Rotisserie chickens. Straight. Bruce Springsteen. Gay. The Sphinx. Gay. Perfect. <laughs> okay. Lay it on me. I'm ready. <laughs> this is the stupidest thing. <laughs> this is so stupid. I love it so much. Okay. Ready? Ready. Sacramento. <laughs> Straight. Four leaf clovers. Gay. Candelabras. Oh, gay. Climbing Mount Everest. Straight. Well, questioning. Molten lava. Gay. Yes! Uh, I want to keep that segment. <laughs> it's like questioning to climbing Mount Everest. It's like, it's so straight, but it's also kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I got okay, you. Okay, perfect. Um, so now it's time for our poem. <laughs> do you want do you want to go first with our poem? Yes. Your poem? We just we have so many books of poetry around. And I've been wanting to read this one. This is Hera Lindsay Burr. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to save it for next time. Cool. Because I just adore her, and I'll probably want to read, like, 500 poems of hers. This book is so fucking good. This is uh, Magical Negro by um, Morgan Parker. She also wrote a collection called There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I think she she has a couple others, but she's just fucking phenomenal writer and I love her on Twitter as well. This poem is called Who Were Frederick Douglass's Cousins and Other Quotidian Black History Facts That I Wish I Learned in School. I have a body. It sits in a desk. Every day is bitten with new guilt. Mm. My teacher can see right through me Mm. all the way to Black History Month. It is my fortune to be ashamed and from nowhere. How can I concentrate on photosynthesis when there is a thing called Africa? When my teacher talks about slaves, I become a slave. Mm. I know too much. I raise my hand. American flag and family tree. Is it my fault my stomach aches? I wait in my desk and try to be still. I lie and immediately confess. I grow a plant in a paper towel. I get in trouble for talking. At recess, I pretend. The mountains are closing in. I am good, but too curious. What happened to the Indians? How do we know about heaven and dragonflies? Where did Harriet Tubman sleep? Who did Harriet Tubman kiss? Mm. What about the Africans that stayed? Mm. Why are they hungry? Mm. Did Frederick Douglass's mother brush his hair in the morning? Was he tender-headed and afraid? Is this how I am supposed to feel? Are you sure? How do you know? Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that. So And I, I think you've read that to me before, but it just hit me anew. That's how really do you incredible. know? All of the questions and then how do you know? I love that growing a plant in a paper towel. Thank you for sharing that, honey. That's gorgeous. Thank you. Um, so this is a chapter of the memoir that I mentioned called In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. There's a like a kind of a grisly description in here. So if anybody is uh, really freaked out by that, maybe skip skip ahead a little bit. This is from a chapter of In the Dream House called uh, Dream House as Folktale Taxonomy. 
In Hans Christian Andersen's story, The Little Mermaid has her tongue cut out of her head. Mm. In The Wild Swans, Eliza is a princess who is silent for seven years as she stitches nettle shirts for her brothers, who have been turned into the eponymous birds. Then there's the goose girl, whose identity, title, and husband are stolen by a treacherous maid and who cannot speak of her plight for fear of her life. The Little Mermaid suffers in other ways, too. The process of growing legs is as painful as knives slicing open her tail. She dances beautifully because every time she steps, she's in agony. Still, the prince does not pick her. At the end, she considers killing him to save herself, but she chooses to die instead and is carried away by angels. She has, through her suffering, earned a soul. But before that, the witch takes the muscle of her tongue and cuts through the tissue. If you've ever sliced a pork chop with a shitty Ikea knife, you know what it was like. That sawing, that rocking back and forth, the slick and squeaky give of the muscle, the white marbled fat. Eliza, on the other hand, is lucky. Well, lucky-ish. Well, luckier. The nettles are stinging nettles, and she has to harvest them from graveyards. And she has to be silent the whole time. Silent as she creates the shirts with her raw and blistered hands. Silent as a man falls in love with her. Silent as they try to burn her for being a witch. And even once she has finished her task, she faints before she can speak. And so her brothers have to speak for her. And Goose Girl, she survives. She straight up survives. Yes, the false princess has her beloved talking horse killed and his decapitated head hung from a gate for all to see. Yes, she has to watch someone waltz around with her identity on like a costume, afraid to say what needs to be said. But in the end, with the help of a kindly king and a goose boy, her truth comes out. She marries her prince and rules with kindness and is happy until the end of her days. Sometimes your tongue is removed. Sometimes you still it of your own accord. Sometimes you live, sometimes you die. Sometimes you have a name. Sometimes you are named for what, not who you are. The story always looks a little different depending on who's telling it. There's a Quichua riddle. El que me nombra, el que me nombra, me rompe. Whatever names me, breaks me. The solution, of course, is silence. But the truth is, anyone who knows your name can break you in two. Oh my God! Yeah, and she. Um, every chapter for a for a large part of the book is like her recasting of this abuse in different genres, like through the lens of different Shut genres. Up. It's absolutely. I have one chills of all over my body. Just, I have goosebumps. I have goosebumps. She, just one of the more heartbreaking. So that's a little bit of a heavy note. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you, baby. On a lighter note, we have a whole list of future episodes. Should we tease them? Yeah. We're not going to do these in in order, but this is what you all have to look forward to in the coming weeks. Yeah, spin the wheel. Brrr, social media. Great. Uh, I mean, maybe I shouldn't have led with that one. That's kind of No, that's... No, everybody wants to know about yeah, that. social media is fun. Brrr, I'm going to stop doing that. <laughs> Faith and religion. Mm-hmm. Dating and moving in. Dogs and pets. Relationships and communication. Our relationship, how we first met. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. Sex. <laughs> Hell yeah. Finances. Boring. Oh my God. No way. You thought this was going to be boring. <laughs> it's kidding. so not. I was trying to come up with commentary for everything else, but I couldn't think of anything until sex when I went, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Wait. You know what? I just farted. You know, did you? Okay. I finally let it out. Good job. Let's draw a tarot card anyway. Okay, let's just do it. <sighs> 
Not that one. <laughs> we got the uh, reverse three of swords, which means mental alienation, distraction, <laughs> confusion, loss, sorrow, and upheaval. Y'all have a great... I peed. I just peed. I peed a little bit. I I hope y'all have a wonderful week. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. Keep supporting us. Keep sharing us with your friends. Give us a five-star rating on Apple. I don't know. Kiss your friends. Kiss your neighbors. Tip your servers. Hug your dog. Put your seatbelt on. Love yourself. Wear your helmet. Drink water. Take care of yourself. Clean the world up. Read books. Sick, sick, sick. sickly. <laughs> or listen to books, by the way. Listening to an audiobook is just as legitimate an exercise as reading a book. Bye. There are a bunch of ableist people who say that's not true. I felt like we needed to mention that. We don't say bye like that. We say... Good. Bye.